0: Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you would like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharingChurch.com. Now we hope you learned from and enjoy today's message. This morning, again, we're gonna continue our series now through the book of Exodus, and we're continuing. So go and grab your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter two. We've made it all the way to chapter two. Only like 38 more to go, we should be fine. And so uh, Exodus chapter two, or on your device, Exodus chapter two, if you're gonna use the device, I'm gonna read out of and teach out of the English Standard Version, the ESV. If it's easier for you to follow along with those words, uh, feel free to do that. Exodus uh, chapter two is where we will be this morning. It's just part of a series for us that we're doing all year long, And so with that, we don't want this just to be something you come and hear about on Sunday mornings, but something that we participate in throughout the year because there's so much more inside of this book than what can be taught uh, simply on a Sunday morning. And so uh, we have some resources for you. So on the screen, you'll see a QR code uh, for a discipleship guide, a study guide. Uh, You can get your phone out, open the camera app. It'll take kind of an image of that. There'll be a link that comes up on your phone Uh, If you wanna do that, you can do that. It's a study guide, Uh, discussion questions for you, ways to dig deeper into the passages. Uh, There's also some notes, things about the plagues in there. Uh, Just a number of things for you, I wanna invite you to download that if you'd like to. And if you're tech tech savvy enough, you can actually save it right to your phone. And then you have it right there. And so that is our study guide. More resources are on our website, SharonChurch.com. You can go watch some videos, you can order some books, whatever you wanna do to enrich your study of this great book, uh, the book of the Exodus. And if you're leading a family in any way, we have a family guide available for you as well. Right now it takes you through the first 10 weeks of our study, Uh, discussion questions for you and your kids or your household, Uh, just ways to celebrate different things, even conversation starters as you're in the car on the way to ball practice or cheerleading or wherever else it is, Girl Scouts, wherever else it is that you're going, uh, you can download that as well, get your uh, camera out on your phone. Scan that code and we'll go from there, all right? All right, so we're gonna be in Genesis 2, but what I wanna give you first is a list of all the verses we're gonna cover this morning. So this will be up on the screen. Take a picture if you want to, write them down. I know for many of us, uh, we have to move kind of quickly, and so we get lost in it. Or if you're like me, you have a hard time finding some books of the Bible. And so that's hard to scan and find all of it. So here's a list of them. Write it down if you want to. You can read about it, study it uh, later this week. Or if you wanna get a head start, you type A, people, get your tabs ready, and then you can go ahead and turn there. You probably already have the, the cheat things on the side anyway, tell you where the books of the Bible are. So that will help you um, get there as well. All right, this, these are the scriptures for this morning. Exodus chapter 2, what I want to do first is read through verses 1 through 10, just to give us the narrative. I want to show us the story, the arc of what's happening. And then what I'd like to do, um, just if God would allow us to, is to put this in context of scripture. And then what I wanna do this morning is I wanna look at biblical faith, what faith actually is. I think it's been misrepresented a lot in churches, uh, just a lot in our world, so I wanna try to put some of this in context. So let's read these first 10 verses. We're gonna try to put it into some context and then overall see what's happening in in this account. So Exodus chapter two, verse one. Now, a man from the house of Levi, Uh, they they have genes, Uh, went and took as his wife a Levite woman, and the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child or beautiful child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes. Circle that word basket, underline it, we'll come back to it. And daubed it with bitumen and pitch. And you can circle and underline those two words. She put the child in the basket and placed it among the reeds. You can circle that word, by the river bank, the river being the Nile River. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh, who is the king of Egypt, came out to bathe at the river while her young women or her servant girls walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. What a surprise. I mean, you put a baby in a basket on a river. He's just, this is cool. No big deal. Yeah, he's gonna cry. She took pity or compassion on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. And then his, Moses', the baby's sister, said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages or and I will pay you for it. And so the woman, Moses' mother, took the child and nursed him. And When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and, she, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. The name Moses in Hebrew is closely affiliated with a word that means to draw out. So she names him Moses because she drew him out of the water. All right, so many of us know this account uh, because you grew up in church and so you saw this on a flannel graph when you were in children's church and then some volunteer told you about it and and then you probably did some some, uh, exercise where you put some baby doll in the bathtub. Thought, look at me, I'm being Moses' mom. No? All right. Cool, that's my life. You do whatever. So this, we know, we kind of know what's happening here. But again, this is 10 verses, 10 sentences inside of an epic narrative from Genesis to Revelation. So this means something more than just what we see here in the context. So let me give us a few things. We've covered this in the past couple of weeks. The Bible is what's called... Um, Ancient Jewish meditation literature. It's ancient meaning it's from a long time ago. Many of us have a hard time remembering what life was like before our smartphone, much less thinking about what what life was like 4,000 years ago. It's ancient. It's a whole different world than what we're used to today. It's Jewish meaning it's written to and by Jewish people. Most of us in the room are not Jewish people today, so we don't understand the history and the context and the feasts and the festivals and the story that have been passed down for generations. It's Jewish, and it's meditation, meaning that it takes some time to understand. You have to sit in it. It's not, it's not a microwave book. This is a crockpot book. You know what I'm saying? Like th- This is good. It's good for you if you can wait for it to be done. But many of us, we try to microwave scripture instead of letting it cook in the slow cooker for a while. And then it comes out hard to chew and kind of really hot on the outside, but really freezing cold in the middle. That's kind of how the Bible is. And we microwave it instead of, instead of slow cooking. So this is, it's meditation literature. It takes some time and it fits into this grand story. The book of Exodus is part of a five book series called the Pentateuch, or we call it the Torah, meaning five part series, Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And it's basically chronological. So Exodus follows Genesis, and that's important for us because a lot of things happen in Genesis that inform what's happening here in Exodus. Now, what's beautiful is that if you keep reading the Bible and you get into what we call the New Testament, whatever happens after the birth of Jesus, if you get there, what you'll see is this book of Exodus is referenced more than any other book in the Old Testament. So I wanna show us one of those places right now. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23. We know this is called the Hall of Faith. So it's, um, I guess, kind of heroes of the faith. And don't, I don't want you to hear heroes as perfect people. I want you to hear that as people who have lived a well-worn life, struggled like you and me, wrestled faith like you and me. But this is all within it. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23. The author of Hebrews says, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. This entire chapter highlights certain uh, characters and people in scripture, and it begins with the phrase, by faith. Now, the author of Hebrews has chosen this account, Exodus chapter two, as an expression of what faith is. By faith, Moses, but it wasn't Moses' faith, it was the faith of his parents, which the author gets to. When they saw the child was beautiful, they hid him for three months. Okay, so he's hidden for three months. How? Why? Because of faith. Now, the struggle for us with faith is that we don't exactly know what faith is. Faith in the Greek, which is what the New Testament is written in, is the Greek word pistueo, which means to be convinced or persuaded of. That's what faith is. Faith is a conviction, a convincing, a persuasion. By faith, through their conviction, they were convinced of something. They had the persuasion. They were persuaded of something about God in such a way that it led them to the action of hiding their son for three months and then placing him on the river. Now, the author of Hebrews begins this chapter by defining faith in his terms. He says in verse 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, if you're like me, that helps me none at all. That doesn't help me at all to know what faith is. That's just, that's just a bunch of fancy words that I, I don't have to look up to know what that means and put it all together to make a complete sentence. I don't know what this means. And it gets even harder when you look at other translations. So sometimes it'll say faith is the assurance. Sometimes it says faith is the confidence. Sometimes it says faith is the substance. Sometimes it says faith is the reality of things hoped for. Again, I, you got, I, I got nothing. Well, then he's gonna help us with the next phrase, the conviction of things not seen. Got it? Mm, Nope. Also, some translations, instead of conviction, say the evidence of things not seen. Well, then what is faith? Well, faith is being persuaded or convinced of something, but it's doing so often without that thing in front of us is unseen, but the author of Hebrews uses words like assurance, confidence, substance, and reality, and then uses words like conviction and evidence. So it's, it's interesting here. He's combining the ideas of knowledge, mental knowledge, reason, and experience together. Faith, that's where faith is found. We'll cover that here just in a little bit. Back to the story of Moses and his mother, Many of us, what happens in faith is, okay, so then if I trust God, does that mean I do nothing? And particularly if you believe God is sovereign, that he does what he wants, when he wants, how he wants to do it, well then why even participate at all if he's gonna do whatever he wants to do, right? So what what does faith look like? Tangibly, what does faith look like? Well, I've got this um, quote from George Bush, not that George Bush, a theologian named George Bush, And I think it's gonna help us here. It begins, it says um, that Moses' mother is a beautiful illustration of the connection which should always exist between the diligent use of means and a pious trust in providence. Instead of sitting down in sullen despair or passive dependence on divine interposition to do all the work. In other words, instead of sitting down uh, depressed or letting God handle all of it, he says, Everything is done which can be done by human agency. So what does it mean to have faith? It means you do everything you can do and then let God do what only he can do. That's what faith looks like. And we see it here in this account. So I wanna give just hopefully a simpler definition of faith. Faith is found at the intersection of knowledge and experience. That's where faith is found. Faith is found at the intersection of knowledge and experience. Now, faith is something that's uh, it's personal to me because I don't have the gift of faith. 1 Corinthians 12, uh, Paul lays out what's called spiritual gifts, and one of them is faith. It's, it's the ability to easily believe in the powerful, majestic things of God. And I do not have that spiritual gift. Yes, I'm a pastor. Faith is hard for me. Just to be completely honest, it's hard for me. Because that's not how I'm wired. I'm not wired to believe easily. I'm not wired for you to say just because I say so, that doesn't matter to me. Or because I say it is. or You just have to trust. That doesn't, I, that's hard for me. I... Uh, I, I've been given more of the gift of cynicism. It's not a spiritual gift, but I think I have some of that in me. I want to ask questions. I need to figure things out. Right? Like, I, Paul calls it the gift of knowledge or discernment. That's me. I, I, faith is harder for me. Now, my wife, Meredith, has this, she has the gift of faith. She believes. She just believes. I'm like, how, how do you do that? I want to do that. That looks awesome. And I'm stuck with questions and searching. To make matters worse, I grew up in church. I grew up going to church, and my parents were heavily involved. My dad was, and mom helped lead the student ministry as volunteers and just deeply, deeply involved in church, which meant for me I didn't have the privilege of being an outsider and being allowed to ask questions. I was from the inside. And because I was from the inside, I was given certain roles, and I was given... Um, certain responsibilities and even uh, titles, and I stepped into leadership and those types of things, all the while wrestling, I, I don't, is this true? Like, is it true? Because I, gosh, I want it to be true, so badly I want it to be true. I just, I, it's hard sometimes. Because the words that people used to use to describe faith to me were so foreign. Well, you just, you just gotta believe. You don't have to know everything to just believe it, sure but I would like to know everything. That would really help me to believe it. If I knew more, I'd have an easier time believing it. And so what happened over time is because I was so desperate for knowledge is that I was lacking the experience of faith. Does that make sense? And so there has to come a time where there is the intersection. But biblically, faith is not a blind leap into the dark. Faith is a persuasion or a convincing. So sometime around September, um, all all the women flock to Starbucks. You know why? Because it's pumpkin spice latte season, that's why. And so they flock there, and they've got their jeggings and their knee-high boots and their fur vests on, am sorry. And so you go there and uh, you wait in line because today's the first day of the pumpkin spice latte. And what you're gonna do, because we're in the South is, you're gonna will cooler weather to happen, aren't you? Like it's been 104 degrees for like six months and it's time for a respite from that. And praise God for all you soccer moms going to Starbucks and saying, today's the day so what you do is, and it happens for all of us, right? The, the first time you go outside to take your kids to school and you aren't sweating getting into the car, you're like, I need to put on a hoodie, it's time. It is time. I need a hoodie and I need my sweatpants and I need college football. That's what I need right now because it's time. And so what happens for us in the South is this. I grew up in Florida and so it's even probably more drastic down there. I mean, the moment, the moment it is below 80 degrees, it's the fall, <laughs> and that's just how it's going to be, and then you start seeing leaves. Like, oh, that one, that one looks a little more yellow today. You see, it's changing. The leaves are changing today. Everything is happening, right, um, and then time change happens, right, but what happens, the moment, I mean, the moment it feels like fall, you're all in because it has to be fall because it can't be summer anymore. It can't. I can't do it. I'm taking too many showers and it feels like outside I'm taking a shower and I don't want to keep doing this. So you're gonna, you believe it to be true because what you know is there's coming a day when it actually will be cool outside and that'll last for like a week (laughs) and then it'll be 100 degrees again for like three weeks but then after that, it'll be like at least a month of it being cooler. But you have evidence that something is coming. Something different is happening. And so what happens for us is because we know it's coming, we begin to live in the present as if it's coming. Does that make sense? And So because we know the fall is coming, because we know cooler days are coming, we back in September, September 1st, which sounds like it should be the fall. Because that's what we've been told. It's not the fall. But we, we start there living in what is not yet a present reality, which will be a future reality. Last Sunday, it snowed. Did you know that? You didn't know it by the morning, but it did. It snowed here. White stuff fell from the sky, and we prepared for it that morning, right? Um, my kids, the earlier in the week, were like, it's snowing. It's snowing on Sunday. I'm like, I don't, buddy, I don't know. I mean, maybe it might. But we live in Georgia, so I don't know. Like, I, I don't know. I mean, it could be snowing, and then the next day, it might be 300 degrees outside. But they prepared for it ahead of time. And how did they know, right? And how do we know that it would snow? Because we know in Georgia, sometimes it snows. And sometimes is a very liberal word for that. I don't don't mean like some of the time. I mean, literally, sometimes it snows. But we have evidence that it just might. And so we live in what will be the future, but we live like it in the present. That's... That's what faith is. It's being convinced of something to come in such a way that you live like it now. That's what faith looks like. But what's happened for the church is that we've turned faith into some emotion. We've turned faith into something you feel. We've turned and it's great again, it's great to feel things. We should have emotion in the church, but faith biblically is not an emotion. It doesn't begin with emotion, faith begins with reason. Which is what I love because it settles my heart to know I can ask all the questions. And if I'm seeking first the kingdom of God, all those things will be added to me. That when I seek him with all of my heart, I will find him. So I can ask the questions, and my kids can ask the questions, and our students can ask the questions, and you, and you can ask the questions. Because faith, is rooted in reason. But in the church, we've taken reason out of the equation. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 10, is about to send his disciples out. He's gonna send them to do some real ministry, like nitty-gritty, grimy, dangerous kind of work. And in Matthew 10, verse 16, he says, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. That might mess with you a bit, that Jesus says, be like a snake. He's saying, be shrewd, be cunning, be wise. In other words, in faith and in following Jesus, there is room to use your brain. You're allowed to use your brain. You're allowed to process and think. You're allowed to um, not just do what someone told you to do because they told you to do it. You're allowed to ask some questions. You're allowed to be shrewd, to use the gift of your mental faculties to actually live your life. You're allowed to do it. And in fact, Jesus tells them, do it. Because if you don't, you're gonna find yourself in danger. There are wolves out there. So be shrewd, be cunning, be careful. Use your brain, look for warning signs, ask questions. And yet, be as innocent as a dove. Use all of those things for the glory of God and the good of others. So all that in place, I want us to go back to Exodus. And remember that Moses' parents are Hebrew. So they've grown up with all the Hebrew tradition. They've been told all the stories from from creation in Genesis chapter one to the fall in Genesis three. They've been told stories about Noah and the ark and the flood. They've been told stories about Abraham and Isaac and and Abraham sacrificing or bringing his son up a mountain to sacrifice him and God providing a ram, a sheep in the thicket to take its place. They've been told all of these stories. They understand it. They heard, passed down the words of Joseph in, in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, that what the enemy intended for evil, God has turned and intended for good, that many should be saved. They know the promise God gave to Abram about this land that would be theirs to come. And while they've been in exile as slaves in Exodus, they know a day is coming. So they've been told all of this. Exodus chapter one, verse 22, says that Pharaoh commanded all his people. Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now, what you're gonna see that's interesting about this edict from Pharaoh is that he doesn't understand. It's the daughters who make everything happen. It's the women who save the Hebrews. And he's just letting them all live. The very thing he set out to do would actually be his curse. But Pharaoh has escalated. Remember, he's escalated because he said, hey, if if you're on the birth stool and you see a, a male child come out of the womb, kill the child right there. And so he talks to the midwives, and the midwives say, Listen, listen, man, uh, these Hebrew women, they're stronger than Egyptian women. They're vigorous, and we can't even get there before they're giving birth to the child. I'm sorry, we can't help you. So then Pharaoh says, Fine, fine. Then every newborn baby you throw into the Nile River. How's that? You want to do that? Let's play that game. Throw them into the Nile River. So people do, because Pharaoh was not just a king to them, he was a god. And if he said to do it, they did it. So edict comes down from the king. People are doing this. But I want you to pay attention to the shrewdness and cunningness of Moses' mother. What did, what did Pharaoh say to do with the babies? To put them where? In the Nile River. Pay attention. Exodus chapter 2, verse 1. A man from the house of Levi. We'll get. That's important, but not today important. It is important. We'll get back to it and took us his wife, a Levite woman, and the woman conceived and bore a son. This isn't her first child, and it's not her first son. This is her third child that we know of. She's got an older son named Aaron, and then a daughter named Miriam. Scholars would probably say that Aaron was probably five or six, Miriam probably three years old or so at this time. But they came before the edict came down from Pharaoh, and so they're safe. Moses' mom knows she's pregnant. She's gonna deliver and just hoping it's not a boy because if it's a boy, what am I gonna do? And as God would have it, it was a boy. But verse two says that he was a fine child or a beautiful child. I don't know what your kids looked like when they were born, um, but apparently this one was special. This one was beautiful. In Acts chapter seven, Stephen would say that uh, he was beautiful as unto the Lord, that there was something divine about this baby. And I don't, I don't mean that like you think your child's gonna play quarterback in the NFL. I mean they, something sacred about this baby. And she saw this and she hides the baby in verse two for three months. I don't know how your newborns were, um, there was no shot of us hiding our newborns for three months. And no one finding out that we had a baby? Like, no one, no one hears them, at all. But imagine the stress for three months that Moses' mother and father and Aaron and Miriam lived in under. Shh, stop, stop, stop. What do you do? What do you do when a baby who knows no better, he doesn't know about an edict from Pharaoh. He doesn't know he should be quiet. How do you handle this? So for three months, she's hiding this baby. Verse three, when she could hide him no longer, which took a lot longer than I thought it would, for three months, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. Now, if faith is based on a convincing or a persuasion and faith is based on knowledge, at the intersection of knowledge and experience, well, what knowledge does she have to have this kind of faith? Why, Why make a basket? Why cover it in bitumen and pitch? Well, would it help you if I told you some translations don't say basket there, they say ark? Would it help you if I told you the Hebrew word for basket here in Exodus chapter two is the same Hebrew word for ark back in Genesis chapter six through nine with Noah? And would it help you if I told you the only time That word is used in all of the Old Testament is to describe this basket of Moses and the boat that Noah built. Does that help you? And then what if I told you in Genesis chapter six, verse 14, God told Moses these words, make for you an ark, a basket of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. Does that help you to see what faith looks like Here's where Moses' mother's mind went. Okay, I've got to do something for this child. I've got to save him. I believe he's set apart from the Lord. When do I remember a time that God preserved life on the water? That's right, I remember. I remember the account of Noah. I remember that God built, had him build an ark and then he covered it with pitch to keep the water from getting in. I'll do that for my child. She has the experience, the knowledge. She has the knowledge, and now she's putting it in play with the experience. Now, let's keep reading verse three. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. Where did Pharaoh say to place the child? In the Nile. And what did shrewd as a serpent, Moses' mother, do? She placed the child in the Nile. It frustrates you when your kids do it. Well, that's not what, I did what you said to do. I know, but that's not what I meant. Sorry, Pharaoh, I did what you told me to do. I know, but that's not what I meant. Well, that's what you said, so I did it. She placed the child in the Nile in an ark. Now, what's fascinating is that our acts of faith in the present are going to help someone who needs faith in the future. Because when we get to Exodus 13, and 14, and God leads the children of Israel and he sets them free from slavery in Egypt. He leads them to a river bank in what we call the Red Sea, which in Hebrew is actually a sea of reeds. What Moses' mother is doing now in her faith based on her knowledge, combining it with experience, is actually leading to building the faith of someone in the future. She puts her child in the ark And places him. Now, again, notice what she does. She doesn't throw him out into the rapids. Well, he said, and I have faith, so I'm just going to go all in. She places him by the reeds at the riverbank. And then notice what she does, because she's shrewd as a serpent. She sent his sister at a distance so that she would be able to see what would be done to him. Sometimes the wrestle of faith, especially for those on the outside, is yeah, but how, how do you know that God did it and that we didn't just make this all up and set things in place? Well, how do you know that God rescued Moses and it wasn't just the cunningness of his mother? And I would say, yes. God did it through the shrewdness of his mother. He raised her up, gave her a particular mindset and motivation, placed her in this place to be the mother of this child at this time to make these things happen. And God gave him an older brother named Aaron and an older sister named Miriam. She didn't do that by herself. And the providence of God meeting uh, with this faith of his mother. Verse five, now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. While her young woman walked beside the river and she saw a basket among the reeds. Well, wouldn't you know it? And she sent her servant woman and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him. Notice that Pharaoh didn't find the baby because I'm not sure Pharaoh has any pity or compassion. But his daughter did. And he said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Well, how did she know that? Well, probably because this baby was circumcised. And then his sister, Miriam, three years old, four years old, sees this happen and walks up to Pharaoh's daughter, sweet little Miriam. She says, shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? She approaches the daughter of Pharaoh and says, I've got an idea, Um, he's Hebrew, you want me to go get one of the Hebrew women that can nurse the child for you? And then watch this, Pharaoh's daughter said to her, okay, that sounds great, yeah, go, go do that. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Read what's happening. Moses' mother placed him in a basket, full of tears, can't believe this is happening, praying that God would rescue him, believing he's set apart, believing there's some days ordained for him in the future. This can't be it. Please don't let this be it. Please don't let this be it. It does everything that she can do. God sends Pharaoh's daughter at that time to bathe at that river, at that place, and finds that basket with that baby. In the meantime, Moses' sister is watching all this happen. That daughter and we don't know why. We don't know why she had pity, don't know why she had compassion. She just has a mothering instinct. Was she desperate for children? We don't know. But God had ordained this moment, and in this moment, Miriam goes back and tells her mom, Moses' mom, "Hey, hey um, Pharaoh's daughter wants you to raise your child." "Yeah, go," she says. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I'll pay you for it. Any mothers wanna be paid to raise your children? (laughs) Any of you feel like you earned that? Like at least a little bit, just something. Listen, this, this is the goodness of God. He takes what was given empty handed. God, I trust you and I trust you because I've seen it with Noah. I trust you. And I trust that this is who you are. And I don't know how it's gonna work, but I believe something's going to work. And I, I'm gonna cry about it, and I'm gonna fret about it, because I'm, I'm kind of sure, but I'm not really sure. And this is what God does. He provides salvation, but then he provides blessing on top of salvation. So Moses' mother not only doesn't lose her child at this moment, but now gets to raise him and gets paid to raise him. So the woman took the child and nursed him. But before we get too excited for this Lifetime movie, verse 10, when the child grew older, his mother brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. Can you imagine? You laid him in a basket once and now you're gonna have to do it all over again. Pharaoh's daughter is the one who named him Moses because, she says, I drew him out of the water. Fascinating. Thousands of years later, we're reading the account of a man named Moses because he was named by an Egyptian woman. The name meaning to be drawn out of. But what I want you to see in the midst of all of this is the faith of Moses' parents. Faith in a God who is faithful and has proven himself faithful time and time and time again. Now, I didn't read all of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23. I wanted to save some of it for now. So watch this. Hebrews eleven, twenty-three. 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw the child was beautiful. But then look at this. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. We can read Exodus 2 and think, man, of course. I mean, she was fearful, didn't want him to die. And then the author of Hebrews will tell us, no, no, it wasn't about fear. This was about faith. She didn't respond in fear. She responded in faith. Well, how do we know the difference? Here's how we know the difference. Fear drives overreaction or inaction, and faith drives the right action. Pharaoh is in fear, and so he overreacts. Pharaoh's in fear, so he overreacts. Abraham has seasons of fear, and then he refuses to act. That's fear-driven. Faith drives us to the right action. So let's just qualify a few things for us. In those times that you've said you were having faith, were you? Or were you having being driven by fear that led you to an overreaction? When you got into that dispute on social media and you overreacted, is that because you have such great faith or because you were afraid of something? When you go off about the government and the president, is that because you have such great faith in the sovereign king of the universe or because you're fearful of what a man can do to you? When you refuse to forgive someone who has hurt you, is that because you have such great faith in a God who forgave you of your deepest, darkest sins or because you're afraid and so you have inaction? Fear drives overreaction or inaction while faith drives the right action. But again, faith is at the intersection of knowledge and experience because it's not faith unless you do something about it. Moses' parents had great faith. They had great knowledge of what they had learned, what they had experienced, and what they had heard, and yet they had to do something about it to actually have faith. It's not faith to know it, and it's not just faith to be crazy. It's faith to combine the two things. That's what faith looks like, and his parents had faith. So the question then is, well, then how do we find faith? Well, let me give us an illustration. It's not my illustration, so... I hope it works. If it doesn't work, it's not mine. All right, so just pretend I'm not doing this part. Pretend I haven't brought this chair out here. Can you do that? You've been pretending to listen for 40 minutes, so I think you can handle that part. All right, listen, I didn't just do that. I don't know it's back here, right? Now, would I have any reason to believe that there's a chair behind me had I not just brought that out? Would I have any reason to believe that? Was there a chair on stage when Joel and Michael and Lisa were leading worship? Was there a chair on stage? No. Did I ever see one? Pretend. No. Great. No, I haven't. Okay? So I have no reason to believe that there's one back there. Now, what if I did this and I said, is there a chair behind me? And now you look on the stage and what do you say? All right, let's pray. We can go home. You did a great job. Yeah. Okay. You see it, I don't see it, but you see it for me, right? You see it on my behalf, you see it. So I have a decision to make. I don't have the reason in my mind to believe there's a chair behind me, but I have testimony of people who say, yeah, there's definitely a chair behind you. And I trust some of you. And so if you say it, okay, well then, the only way for me to move from just knowledge of what you've told me to faith is that I find my way to the chair, right? Okay, well then help me find my way to the chair. Seriously, help me find my way to the chair. You're right. My right or your right? You're right. My right, right. okay. Right. Straight back? Yeah. Uh, hey, okay, I feel it, I feel it. You told me there was something there, and now I'm feeling it. Now I have a moment of something that I have to do. Now I've gotta decide, am I going to allow your faith to continue, or do I transfer your faith to my own belief? So the question is, do I sit? Do I sit in it, or do I say, well, you're sitting in chairs, good for you. Or do I think, well, then I've gotta transfer now faith from yours to mine, and then I sit down. Yes, okay. So I sit down. (laughs) It's really scary, okay? Now, what have I just done is that I have combined knowledge, and not just mine, yours. Your knowledge, what you know, what you understand, what you see, what you've experienced. And I now have the experience of faith. So I can stand up, and then I can sit right back down. Because I know there's a chair there. This is what faith looks like. It's the combination of knowledge and experience. And it began with reason. And the reason for me was you. You were the reason. It was your testimony that gave me reason to believe. How did Moses' mother, why did she have faith? She had a reason. Was she there when Noah built the ark? Was she there when the floods came down? Was she there when Abraham was called to go sacrifice Isaac and God provided a ram in the thicket? Was she there for that? No, but she knew about it. She had the scriptures and she had people. This reason is the beginning of our faith. And then reason then moved for me to your guidance. And what you allowed me to do was to ask you questions. And you probably got frustrated because it was a dumb question. My right or your right? But I feel like it was a very intelligent question. That's a whole, that, that's gonna change everything. But you guided me based on my sight or based on your sight? On your sight. You guided me. I needed faith based in reason and you had to guide me to it. And then came the moment for me of what am I gonna do with this information now? Now I have knowledge. And for some of us, especially if you've grown up in the church, here's the problem for you you got a bunch of knowledge. And you're gonna hit a moment where you have to transfer that knowledge into experience so you really find faith. And people have told you a lot of things. And you've lived it for 10, 12, 14, 17, 45 years. But you've never transferred their faith to your own. And the only way for me to experience the comfort and safety of that chair was to sit down. Was to bridge that gap between the two and to find faith. Moses' parents had this experience. They had knowledge. They were guided in the way of knowledge by a rabbi, by a teacher, um, by uh, family members and generations that had gone on long before. And now they're faced with this moment of what do we do with what we know? And they choose faith. They choose to experience it. But what's interesting is that If you know anything about the rest of this story, it isn't all safe from here on out for Moses, is it? And Moses makes decisions that break his mama's heart. And Moses murders a man and Moses runs far from home. And Moses marries a woman who's not Hebrew, makes a bunch of decisions that would cost him And most scholars would tell you that Moses' mother never saw him lead the people out of slavery in Egypt. She never knew what became of her son. But in this moment, she had to live in the space between the already and the not yet. The very same reason we put on hoodies and fur vests and get our pumpkin spice latte when it starts to look like fall. You and I right now are in the in-between There's a day coming in which the world will be made right. There'll be a new heavens and a new earth. There'll be no more tears left to cry. All relationships will be restored and we'll be in the presence of God forever. And yet today, it doesn't feel like it because there's cancer and there's broken relationships and there's pain and there's sin and there's uh, hurt and there's health issues and there's divorce and there's murder. So as followers of Jesus, what does faith look like? Well, faith looks like I'm gonna live like that is here today now. I'm gonna live in the in-between as if the, the already has already, or the not yet has already come. So we choose faith over fear. So we forgive, not because it matters today, but because we believe a day is coming when we no longer need forgiveness. And so we forgive We live open-handed with our kids and our marriages, our spouses and friends. We live as though the fall is already here. That's what faith looks like. So if you'll bow your heads and close your eyes. I want you to think through, put yourself here in the shoes of Moses' parents. And the truth is many of us are already there We've got some decisions to make. We've got to decide whether we're going to allow fear to drive us towards overreaction or inaction. Or we're going to allow faith to push us to the right action. We're driven by fear. Fear of losing out, fear of missing out. Fear of losing a loved one, fear of breaking a relationship, fear of losing a job, fear of getting sick, fear of not uh, making it as far as we want to make it in our careers. We live in that fear, and what happens is, because we're driven by fear, we overreact, we push too hard, or we do nothing and we don't push at all. But there's this gift of faith, and we've sung about it this morning. I've seen God move mountains and I believe he'll do it again. So maybe today what's on your heart right now is a relationship that's been shattered or it's on the verge of being shattered and what you need to do is move away from fear and move to faith. I've seen you do it before. I've read about it in scripture. I've watched my friends walk it. And then the question is, can he do it again? And do you trust the character of God? Never changing, never ending. Do you trust him? Some of us have been driven so much by fear that we're not acting. You're not sending the resume. You're not pursuing your spouse. You're not investing in your kids spiritually because of fear and faith says, I don't know, I've seen you move the mountains and I believe you can do it again. Maybe today what has to happen for some of us is just tangibly we have to put our kids on the river. You can't control it, but you can do everything you can to provide safety for them, but at some point in time you gotta put the top on the basket and set them in the reeds. And believe that the sovereign hand of God has provided Pharaoh's daughter. He's provided a way out. And in some strange way, your faith will actually come to fruition when they cross their own reed sea. Students, I wanna encourage you, stop letting your parents' faith be yours. You've gotta move and transfer their faith to yours. Some of us today, we need to begin to tell our stories in a way that point people to Jesus. Let them know what he did for you. Let them know where you are. Let them know what he's done. So if it's you today and you're saying, God, I, I just need you to move me from fear to faith, would you just raise your hand that I could pray for you? Say, God, I, I don't wanna live in fear anymore. I need to have faith in a decision, faith in a circumstance, faith faith in a relationship, Yeah, praise the Lord. Me too. Maybe there's some of us today who need to do what you just did for me with this chair. We need to step in people's lives, be the evidence of faith, and then guide them to their own. Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for this account of Moses and his parents. I thank you for the unbelievable precision in which you work. And I'm thankful that in reading Exodus chapter 2, I'm reminded that I can trust you, that I can trust you, and I can live open-handed with my wife and my kids, and I can live open-handed with my house, and I can live open-handed with my time. God, I know there are people in the room today who are hurting in between this intersection, I'm I'm asking that you would provide for them just a dose of faith through the Spirit today. God, I believe there are some in the room here today who um, you have specifically ordained today for such a time as this, that they might hear that you are a God who comes to their rescue, and you're a God who comes to save, and while they may feel like it's hopeless and there's no way out, and they're stuck in this river, God, that you've provided a way not of their own means or their own doing, but out of yours, out of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. So God, would you call them to yourself today, give them the faith to admit their sin, to believe that you are who you say you are and to live their lives as a confession of such. Thank you for the way you love us. Thank you for your faithfulness with us, even in the midst of our fear. In Jesus' name.